Hey everyone, welcome to K-Pop. I'm Jonathan Capehart. Khalil Gibran Muhammad is a professor of history, race, and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School and found himself embroiled in a huge controversy in the local schools of his hometown, South Orange, New Jersey, over the last few weeks that involved race and slavery. Hear him discuss the lessons he learned and the dangers they revealed for African Americans, the left, and our democracy as we know it, right now. Professor Khalil Gibran Muhammad, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for having me. So the idea of having you on the podcast came came about when we were having dinner after a salon uh, hosted by the New York University campus in Florence, Italy. And we had uh, just talked about Ralph Ellison's book, The Invisible Man. And we got to talking about something that happened in, in your hometown in South Orange, New Jersey. And correct me if I'm wrong, your wife is on the school board, and there's a big controversy there involving an assignment in colonial uh, American history. The controversy got so big, you got involved, if I'm not mistaken. Talk about that. What happened? Sure. So about, about a month ago, um, just uh, sometime inside of February, uh, the fifth grade class of a middle school here in South Orange uh, were completing a, a two-week project to explore colonial America. And this included uh, some distinctions between the uh, New England colonies, the middle colonies, and the southern colonies, a full exploration of the politics, culture, economy of these various regions, and uh, really three elements, uh, a newsletter that would talk about uh, the full life of the colonies, uh, a, a brochure, as if you were sort of a chamber of commerce person uh, describing uh, the benefits of your place, and then finally some visual representation of the period, uh, which can include a, a poster of selling tobacco or horses or uh, including slave auction ads. Um, that last element was the one that generated uh, tremendous controversy, particularly from African-American parents. And, and I should say from the start that that a choice to depict uh, the enslaved in the context of an auction ad or runaway slave ad was also voluntary. And that set in motion uh, really a chain of events, uh, starting with social media, uh, where one parent uh, took a picture of all of the uh, slave posters, some of which were uh, depicted as wanted ads, which is problematic since there were no wanted ads in colonial America. Uh, But uh, this person put all those posters together in kind of a single post, and expressed tremendous outrage that this was uh, a demonstration of diminishing uh, the experience of black students, of sort of stigmatizing them, uh, of making them feel bad. And uh, I, I have to admit, this is a person who I'm close to, we're friends, but we, we didn't agree um, on, uh, on his critique. I'd worked with my own daughter on the assignment. And finally, uh, I went to the school to see the bulletin boards myself, uh, and it turns out that the posters, the slave posters, were integrated with all sorts of posters, including uh, political critiques of one uh, set of uh, colonial administrators versus another. Uh, women were depicted on some of these ads, and of course, the commodities like tobacco uh, and other things. So the slave posters were depicted on a Facebook post in a concentrated way, which made it seem like it was a single focus on slavery. And some even interpreted it as a Black History Month uh, bulletin board, which it wasn't. And, uh, and I responded and said, well, it turns out these bulletin boards are much more diverse. Uh, the, the range of assignments, those three elements are scattered throughout. The slave posters are a minority, but they're still there. They're prominent. 
And uh, I sat down with the teachers to talk about the intent of the uh, assignment. In the end, um, a lot of parents uh, were responding to uh, a bigger context, and so the assignment took on a life of its own. Uh, we're in Trump America in the sense of anxiety and fear about racism and white supremacy. Uh, there have been some swastikas show, showing up in some of the other schools. There have been uh, some inward scribbled on bathroom stall doors. And so everything collapsed into this major sense of fear and anxiety. Um, but in that moment, uh, the assignment in some ways became something other than what it actually was. And in, in talking about this and just the way you laid it out there, one of the things that jumps out at me is that, yes, people, there's anxiety and there's fear. And that's, uh, no pun intended, trumping everything, even the facts uh, of the case. You went there. You looked at the bulletin boards. You talked to the teachers. You got the full understanding and context of what was going on, and yet folks weren't having it. No, and, and I think that's, the, that's, to me, this may be the first time in my professional life when I've been so close to an issue that spread from a local story to an international one. It really has left this town and spread as kind of uh, another racial controversy in Trump America. And don't get me wrong, I'm like many people. Part of my job is to sort of be sensitive, to scan the universe for white supremacy. <laughs> I mean, I'm an African-American historian and someone uh, who ran the most important cultural institution dedicated to the preservation of black history. And so what this taught me in this moment is that when I've been on the receiving end of social media stories, when I've read in a newspaper these awful examples of of slave math games in Georgia or uh, horrible textbooks that uh, diminish um, the experience of the enslaved, that it doesn't mean that, that there isn't a truth there in those stories, but it may mean that some of the details have been lost uh, in the media cycle. And it seems like, you know, the, the folks there were not willing to entertain any kind of of nuance here. It was either you were 100% for the assignment or you were 100% against it. Yeah, and I don't want I don't want to also miss the nuance of people. So there there are a lot of different people in this community. Uh, it's a it's a diverse community, about a third black, and uh, as you can imagine, the schools get blacker as you go up in age. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so these are incredibly thoughtful, smart, educated, professional, middle to upper income people. Uh, they read a lot. They, they are on top of things. But in terms of the African-American parents, and they weren't the only ones, but they were the most vocal, I would say that uh, the loudest voices within that community were incredibly critical and were not that interested in some of the details that were inconvenient to how the assignment fit within a larger pattern mm -hmm. of a system uh, hell-bent on destroying the quality of education for black children. And, and Khalil, what's the what's the danger in that? Because we talked about that at dinner. Why is that so so dangerous, and particularly for for the African American community to be to be so rigid, if you will, uh, in situations like this? Part of what I think about is that we we may have to lose some battles over facts. Uh, in this case, uh, I think that's what's happened here to win the war over truth, and winning the war over truth. Um, to me, is the one of the cherished traditions uh, for African Americans that we might be at risk of losing uh, at this moment. You know, we've used facts for a long time to destroy the anti-democratic propaganda of white supremacy, for example, notions that that black people were incapable of self-governance, that they that they should not have access to the ballot. You know, we've used facts to talk about black people's humanity 
and their diverse experience in this nation. And we've used those facts um, over uh, 200 years to, to push the needle on making America a, as much a multiracial democracy as she is today, and to talk about explicitly facts over the contradictions of a nation's founding principles. In other words, to say um, that if the nation really wants to be the, uh, the modern democracy that it claims it is, uh, look at these facts and let's work through them. And I think in this moment, um, I worry specifically that the fear of the Trump world, which is all legitimate, um, may have an unintended consequence of pushing people who have long cherished our democratic principles into a space where the ideology of anti-racism becomes its own kind of prison. Unpa- unpack that, because there's, there's a lot there, Professor. The, the most obvious way to think about this is um, America at its best has functioned in the middle, so to speak. Um, the open, uh, flexible democracy makes it possible uh, for people, um, let's just think civil rights movement, um, to change the laws, to open the society. Now, in closed societies, um, you could have a totalitarian or authoritarian figure who sides with you, and you know things can be good for a decade, 50 years, 100 years. But if you're on the other side of that authoritarianism, then life is miserable. <laughs> you have to wait for regime change. Um, there's no flexible system that can account for um, dissent, for minority perspectives. And so America was built on this idea, and that idea has, has long been the, the means through which black people have opened the society. It has closed. There has been progress and retreat. Uh, There has been progress and peril. Don't get me wrong. I'm not flattening out the up and the down of the experience of black people in this country. But in a moment where we are facing perhaps a a level of authoritarianism that even exceeds what Joseph McCarthy brought to the equation in the spirit of anti-communism in the 1950s, I think black people are at risk of pushing so far to another kind of closed approach to change, that we could be on the, the wrong side of this moment in some ways, and again, in an On the wrong way. side, meaning you uh, end up pushing, say, the, the Trump administration or the Justice Department or the American people in general to no longer be allies, be supportive of things that are, uh, that are of interest and concern to African Americans? More like um, you've replaced one kind of authoritarianism with another kind of authoritarianism. We've always had a strong left tradition, and uh, you know, I count myself somewhat closer to a democratic socialism than a capitalist. So you know, part of this is having to distinguish between an economic system, capitalism, that is built on inequality, that has profited through, through institutional racism by exploiting people in the name of profit. That's all there. And that has even existed alongside a quote-unquote open society. But in the political arena, it seems to me that our legitimate fear cannot manifest itself in shutting down debate and nuance and complexity and working through ideas in a public arena where we then come to terms where we agree on shared facts. We may not agree on how to change the system in the moment, but at least we're having the conversation and we can agree on some shared facts. That's what I found in this moment to be deeply troubling, that it was even hard to have the conversation because the stakes, the sense of anxiety, the sense of no holds barred, the sense of, you know, resist everything um, becomes a kind of cudgel 
that uh, you can't speak up and say, well, wait a minute. Um, it doesn't mean we're not both in agreement that there's a larger uh, truth out there that we ought to get to, which is democracy, which is equality, which is justice, which is equity. But how we get there, we, we want to hold on to a world where facts still matter, um, because the all-fact world is the one that is destroying the very thing we want to get back. And so what do you say, because I get this question all the time from people who are wondering, you know, how do we fight against this, against the alt-right, against this notion of alternative facts, against getting sucked into the daily, I don't know, maw of outrage uh, that seems to be ginned up by uh, the Trump administration in general and President Trump in particular? I think that people in the end want to want to believe in, um, in real things and real facts. They want to trust our institutions. Um, so that's, that's a kind of belief. That is not, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I suppose there's polling data. I'm sure Pew Research has done something to, to talk about, you know, how many people truly believe that facts matter, and I would imagine the majority of them. But I think what Trump has shown us is that through social media, we have democratized knowledge, we've democratized access to information, but we have in some ways leveled the uh, traditional means through which we vet information. Mm-hmm. So we already know that we are much more likely to self-select our media sources today than at any point um, in, in history, precisely because of those democratic forces in social media. But what we are not as a, a, a aware of is that um, everything isn't vetted. And if we want to believe that, that expertise still matters, which the Trump administration often doesn't believe or certainly doesn't express, if we want to believe uh, that people who commit themselves to deeper study and reflection on our problems should have a say in the matter and maybe even um, should, should help us um, open up the conversation. And this is where I think people are starting to resist. They're starting to say, you know, this is a democracy, and my voice is just as important. I think that's always true, mm-hmm. but our knowledge bases are not always the same. And I, I feel uncomfortable communicating this because someone who's literally sitting at the most elite private institution in this country can come off as saying that everyday people shouldn't have a say in things. I, I think we're in, we're, in, we're in some very difficult uh, times and some troubling uh, currents when it comes to how we navigate a space between facts expertise and the democratic process of, of debate in the public square well, and civic engagement. Well, right, the democratic debate, it makes me wonder that given what you just said, and this sort of comports with what I've been thinking and talking about and whining about for a while now, and that is everything you just said makes me wonder, can a democracy, and particularly a democracy like ours, survive a moment like this? I think, uh, I think we're going to find out. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound very hopeful. No, it, it isn't hopeful, uh, and, it, it, and partly because we have a strong history of, of the institutions themselves being the checks and balances against the excesses of a kind of popular uh, sentiment, Be, you know, whether it's populism on one hand or the rule of the mob on the other. Um, you know, the mob can be, can be assembled uh, to, to go in either direction, you know, oftentimes as minorities in this country, as a people who have never been more than 20% of the population in the colonial period and today hover around 13%, we've never had that majoritarian capacity. 
but we have had um, the, the voice of truth and reason and morality as a, as a powerful force for good. And if we give up uh, that capacity ourselves, if, if we only search for um, a narrative that is most convenient to us, um, then we ourselves may be part of uh, this nation going over the cliff uh, precisely because and this is the thing I celebrate all the time. It's the story of African-American history, which is that we helped make this nation stay <laughs> on the cliff um, to keep it from going over the cliff. Hmm. Um, so we have always had an outside, we black people, to be specific, have always had an outsized role in holding the nation accountable for the very institutions that professed democratic principles, but often on the basis of anti-blackness, did not live up to them. So we, in this moment, in some ways, have the unfair burden of being truer to the nation's principles than perhaps other groups. That's a very, very profound statement and one that should make a, make people make a lot of people think. I want to talk about the um, about the salon that we that we participated in um, on behalf of the NYU campus in Florence. And there was something you said uh, during the conversation that I want you to talk about. And I'm trying to I'm trying to find it. Here it is. You said something along the lines of you lose something when you conflate invisibility with a lack of representation. Again, we were talking about Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, which is celebrating its 65th anniversary this year. What did you mean by that? What I meant is that um, if, if invisibility translates only into the question of representation, um, the uh, appearance of black people um, it is, I, I work in the criminal justice arena, and so I think about what does it mean oftentimes when, when my, white police chiefs and, and white mayors stand before the press uh, with their black lieutenants on their side. Hmm. Um, you know, that's, that's a kind of representational performance that says that what I am saying about what's happening to black people in this city or what the police department is doing to these black people um, is not about racism because, look, I have black people who support me. I wrote a piece in the New York Times in the middle of January that essentially argued that uh, the era of assimilation and representational diversity is over. Um, we really have to focus on what does it mean to have black people in positions of leadership and authority and then to hold those black people accountable for the institutions themselves, that it can't mm -hmm. just be about those faces. Because the truth is that invisibility by itself doesn't capture the other side of the coin, which is hypervisibility of blackness as a stand-in for how institutions themselves push back against what does it mean that black people, you know, have helped to define what whiteness actually is. So we're hypervisible in terms of American culture. We, we stand in, uh, even when we're not there, when there's only one or two of us, mm -hmm. as representations of what this nation um, has done in terms of democracy. One good example, to be clear. I know I'm loopy a little bit here. Um, <laughs> in the same era that Ralph Ellison was visiting Rome, um, people like uh, jazz uh, trumpeters, Dizzy Gillespie, were traveling the world as quote-unquote cultural ambassadors for American foreign policy um, in a then heating, uh, heated race between uh, America's version of capitalism and democracy, 
versus Amer uh, Soviet-style communism. And so the quote-unquote representation of blackness was hyper-visible in the form of jazz musicians like Dizzy Gillespie representing the State Department when the very book that Ralph Ellison was writing was talking about the invisibility of blackness in America um, who could not be seen as individuals. Do you understand that contradiction? Oh, yeah. Oh, abs <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you, I, and a whole lot of other black folks live it um, every day. And in that same um, New York Times op-ed, you, you write, we must recognize that institutions are far more powerful than individuals, no matter how many people of color can be counted in leadership. Structural racism is immune to identity politics. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think that we could only see that, unfortunately, with the benefit of the last 50 years of history. Um, if, because how could we know that it wouldn't be enough to become a first black mayor of Cleveland, of Detroit, of Newark, or pick any number, number of cities? How could we know that it wasn't enough to just become one of 130 black police chiefs that James Foreman writes about in a new book that, that is just coming out, um, where those 130 black police chiefs did not stop? Uh, mass incarceration um, for all sorts of reasons. But the simple fact of being a first black police chief was way insufficient to, to fundamentally transforming our criminal justice arena. So it's not enough anymore. If we don't learn from the half century since the civil rights era of 1964 and 65 that just representation, just closing the gap on quote-unquote invisibility um, is not enough, then I'm afraid we won't move further. We won't get past mm -hmm. this. And, and you also, I mean, the ultimate uh, being President Barack Obama. And in that same New York Times piece, um, you, you say we now live in a post-assimilation America. The 50-year-old rules for racial advancement are obsolete. There is no racial barrier left to break. There is no office in the land to which an African-American can ascend that will serve as a magical platform for saving black people and our nation's soul from its racial ra uh, from its racist past. Yeah, you know, and I I wrote that piece uh, both out of love and respect for President Obama, but also recognizing that uh, some of us in the black community gave up a lot of our own political power in deferring to the nature of our government over the past eight years. Um, and, you know, these, these are complicated waters. You know, the, the question of what could a black president do, what could um, one do in the wake of a Tea Party revolution and unprecedented construct, congressional obstructionism. And so I don't think people will ever resolve the question of coulda, shoulda, woulda. But I do think that now that that presidency is over, God bless him. But if we don't learn that the next time around there's – there's a, a new identity in the White House, whether it's a Latina or a white woman um, or an Asian man, that we have to bless those folks for how they got there, but we still have to hold our government accountable for working. Um, because the slippery slope of saying that it's good enough, the symbolism, the representation is, is all we need, um, I think puts us back where we've been for the last 50 years. You are the great-grandson of... Uh, Elijah Muhammad, who was a leader of the Nation of, of Islam for, for decades, I think from 1934 until, until he passed away in 1975. What, what do you think your great-grandfather would say, one, about this time that we're in, and two, specifically, about President Trump? 
Well, my great-grandfather would see this as um, a moment of tremendous opportunity uh, to further the nation's commitment uh, to a separate community. Um, you know, my, my great-grandfather was a product of the worst kind of virulent racism uh, of the uh, late 19th, early 20th century, a man born in Georgia. Uh, he actually was born to a Baptist preacher uh, and then came to Detroit and unfortunately landed in Detroit uh, in the midst of the Great uh, Depression where he had a whole bunch of babies uh, to feed. And uh, you know, whatever was bad for white America was worse, much, much worse for black America. And so the failed promises that he experienced as a young adult in the North, leaving the Jim Crow terrors of the South, only to arrive to the abject poverty and discrimination and institutional racism of the, of the North, uh, led him down a path of, you know, in the best tradition of self-reliance, of self-empowerment. And I think that in a Trump era, America, um, he would ask black people to retreat uh, back into their own communities to rebuild uh, their own institutions, to focus on um, their own selves and to eschew uh, the kind of interracial uh, alliances that have certainly challenged the political ethos of this country. And people have to remember, my great-grandfather was in many ways uh, completely disconnected from formal political engagement. And although I don't agree with that approach, um, it, it empowered a tremendous amount of it completely transformed the lives of so many individuals and did make possible uh, sustainable communities that felt empowered, that were dignified. Um, and that's one of the things about America. I mean, you can practice a form of religion and social uh, engagement that is separatist in that sense because we live in an open society. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he would, you know, he, he in some ways he embraced the very openness of the society to choose to opt out of it. How would you um, try to convince your great-grandfather uh, to, if not change his mind, because it sounds like you would never be able to, anyone would be able to change his mind, but at least to see the world from your perspective and through your eyes? Well, the good thing is I don't have to do this as an abstraction. It turns out that uh, one of his sons, uh, a middle child named Wallace Muhammad, who became Imam Muradin Muhammad, started an entirely different movement of American Muslims, most of whom were African-American, and, uh, and he, he, he began to break away from his father in the 1960s. He was excommunicated from the nation, uh, but he lived uh, until quite recently, died about uh, five years ago, and his legacy, his footprint, are in a uh, uh, number of uh, Muslim Muhammad temples and uh, masjids al-Nur's um, all over the country. I just visited one because my grandfather died, Elijah Muhammad's son, Nathaniel. My grandfather died uh, just about a month ago. Oh, my condolences. Uh, and he embraced Sunni Islam in a way that uh, is the traditional form of expression of religious sentiment expression for Muslims and worked in integrated communities, worked among white people. And in the, in the ecumenical faith of Islam, to the extent that uh, Muslims believe in universal uh, humanhood, um, and are peaceful people and want um, to both hold power accountable but also to empower their people, my uncle, my great-uncle uh, Wallace, lived that legacy. Uh, he broke away from his father and he opened up. So the nation today under Louis Farrakhan is not the same movement that my grandfather who died or his brother uh, Wallace Muhammad um, led in a, in a tradition that continues to this day. Professor Khalil Gibran Muhammad, professor of history, race, and public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, author 
of The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Urban America, former head of the Schomburg Center in Harlem, New York. Thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. 